So this semester we've been walking through, if you've been with us, you know, uh, biblical themes. This is kind of in the theological realm of, of biblical theology. So one of the things we wanted to saturate you with Uh, almost in a way where you're like, we get it. We know what Jared is about to say. He's about to give us that line about how the Bible's one story about Jesus and that's really what's best for us, blah, 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 blah. One of the things I want you bored of, tired of, is hearing those same things over and over and over again because ultimately I want you to never be able to look at the Bible the same way. I want, as a result of this semester, for the rest of your life, every time you crack open Ecclesiastes or Leviticus or Nehemiah, or Hebrews, or wherever you open in the scriptures, you have me chirping in your ear. This book is ultimately about Jesus. And you won't be able to ever look away. And he will be held in front of you to where even if you're cranking through the designs of the temple and you're cranking through the census in numbers, your heart will have the kind of reaction to say, this ultimately gets to my glorious Savior. My joy of all joys. And so that's why we are doing this over and over and over again. So even if you're like, okay, just another, you know, enough of the same one, you're, you're seeing a bit wrongly. But even if you have that attitude, that's still a victory for me. Because I want Jesus so in front of your face that you don't really have an option to go back to the Bible's just a boring religious Christian book. Okay, so the Bible is one story that's ultimately about him that is what's best for us. And we've been seeing that over and over again. When we look at themes like the kingdom, we see ultimately he is the king of the kingdom bringing it about. When we look at themes like the covenant or beauty, we see he is the beauty of all beauties, that all beauty flows from him. He's the fountain that all other beauties spring from. And today, as we look at the community of God, the theme of the community of God, we'll see again our Savior, Jesus Christ, right at the center. The one who is the ultimate reflection of who we're meant to be as a people. The one who ultimately brings us together. The one who ultimately tears down every landmine that might divide us as a community. So we want to see this theme throughout the scripture. And then ultimately, I'll just tell you, uh, I'm going to spend an inordinate amount of time in the church section. We usually go through Creation, fall, and then God's plan of redemption. So we look at Israel, how God is going to redeem us. Uh, Ultimately, through the promises he's making to Abraham and his family, we get to Jesus, we look at the church, then we get to uh, eternity, and then we'll give you some practical things. It's kind of the flow of every one of these teachings. I'm going to spend a large amount of time in that church section because uh, as someone who's kind of grown up here in in the Bible Belt, I think, I might be wrong, but I think this is one of the things we have the weakest views of. Uh, We live just in our culture, in our Western culture, the most hyper-individualized culture in the history of the world that is going to very much play down community and even in our Bible Belt culture, uh, church shopping is a normal thing. We have a very, very brand new in the history of the church view of the local church in particular where the church is kind of an add-on to our lives, or it's a club. I have membership to a club, but this is a place that primarily provides me with goods and services. And if I don't like those goods and services, I will go somewhere else. Zero laying down preferences, zero sacrifice. You know, we don't follow JFK's advice. We don't ask, what can I do for my church? We say, what can my church do for me? And if you're not satisfying me, I will move on and go somewhere else that suits my preferences, or maybe not go anywhere at all. I might float around for a long time without belonging to a church. That is the normal 
view uh, in our day in the most churched area, the Bible Belt uh, of the West, where you know we are together maybe and committed, but even as we view one another as members of a church, we might say, oh, here's fellow Christians that happen to attend the same services that I attend. So it's, again, my opinion, as someone who just looks at these things quite a bit, that this is one of the primary areas, maybe the primary area where we have the weakest view of the biblical reality of the church, of the people of God, of the community of God. Because as we'll see, uh, the reality when you look at the scriptures is there is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. There is no such thing as you by yourself with God. The primary way we view Christianity does not exist in the scriptures. Me and God, and maybe I'll let a couple people in on my business. You will not find that on a page of the Bible. And so I want to, as we look at this, understand our Bibles better, but also, if I may be so bold, I want to rewire with the scriptures how we are meant to view ourselves in the local church at Parkway and how we are meant to view one another as members of the same local body, as people of the community of God. So again, we'll, we'll go through this, but I'll spend, I'll kind of go a little bit quicker uh, through the Old Testament so we can spend just a good amount of time sitting in the church section. So let's start where we usually start at the beginning, Genesis 1. In the beginning, we kind of get this hint, just a little hint at uh, a community within God, if you will. You say in the beginning, God, singular, created the heavens and the earth. And so you see God, singular, doing all these things. He makes the skies and the sea and the stars and the sun and the moon and you know, fish and birds and all these different things. And then you see in Genesis 1:26 this little hint. It almost is a little confusing. Then God said, let us, make man in our image after our likeness. So there's a little hint, and then Genesis moves on. John is not going to move on. John 1, we'll see. We'll come back to this when we get to our Jesus section, because John is not going to move on. He's going to start his gospel right here in Genesis 1 and say, I'll tell you who that us is. I'll tell you who that our image is. But we'll come back to that. So we get this little hint of a kind of a heavenly community, if you will. And then we see in Genesis 2, God makes man. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man from the uh, man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So the first thing we see, Genesis 1, by the way, is kind of an overview of creation, and then Genesis 2 zooms in, and we kind of see the details of that creation. So we see the details of God creating Adam scoops up some dirt, molds him, breathes life into him. And then you have Adam and a bunch of tigers and elephants and animals, right? So you have Adam by himself with a whole bunch of animals in the garden paradise. And then we see before the fall, before sin, the first thing in God's very good creation that was actually not good. Or if you want to say it this way, we see the first thing in God's good, perfect creation that needs a correction, Genesis 2, 18 through 23. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Skip down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took 
took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the first thing in God's good, perfect, pre-sin, pre-snake, pre-eating of the fruit creation is man is alone. Or to say it this way, there is no community. Man's by himself. Man is isolated and God says, it's not good that man be isolated. Not good that man should be alone. And his correction of this not good thing, this not good isolation is him creating the first community, man and woman, Adam and Eve. And then God commands this first little tiny community, Adam and Eve, to grow the community. They get a creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with more people. Grow this community from two to however many. Spread this community. So you see God corrects this not good aloneness with man and woman and commands them continue to grow this community. And then don't miss this. They also have community with God. They're in the garden. They can dwell in his presence. Sin has not entered the equation yet. They walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day. And so already, again, Genesis 1 and 2 just packs us with so much foundational realities that inform how we live. So we see, just in this theme of the community of God, we see right from the beginning, community is at the very heart of creation. In fact, it's so at the heart of creation that a correction is needed. A not goodness is addressed. And the result of it is community, isolation, even in the perfect creation is not good. Or say it another way, you were made for community. We see from the very beginning, there is no such thing as lone rangering it through this life. You were made for community before we even begin to talk about sin. Now let's talk about sin. So we have those foundational realities, chapter one and two, and then the ultimate buzzkill of buzzkills, Genesis three shows up and we see Adam and Eve, they're given one law, one rule, don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's exactly what they do. The serpent comes and tempts Eve that to doubt God's character, I don't think he has your best intentions uh, in mind. In fact, he probably knows that when you eat this, you will be like him. So he's probably a little threatened by you, right? The, he, she smears God's character to Eve. They take and they eat of the fruit. And then all of a sudden, one of the things we see as sin goes and just ravishes God's perfect, good creation, one of the things that primarily breaks is this community, this people of God. One, we see the community between Adam and Eve, man and woman, is radically fractured. So look at chapter three, verse 11. This is when Adam and Eve sin. They realize they're naked. They run and they hide from God. And then we see this. God comes to them and says to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, what's, what's Adam's reasoning? That woman you gave me. Right? She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So God comes to Adam. What happened? How do you know you're naked? Did you do this thing? The one thing I told you not to do? And he said, she made me do it. Shift your blame eyes on her. Right? You inst- instantly see the perfect unity and harmony and innocence that was there in the garden between Adam and Eve is gone. 
And now Adam wants to save his own skin. And he's doing it at the cost of his wife. You see an instant fracturing in their behavior. And then you see even more explicitly in the curse that is put upon them as a result of their sin. Genesis 3.16. To the woman, this is God, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So that whole fill the earth and subdue it, peace that's spreading the community throughout the world, that peace is going to be painful now where it wasn't before. In pain shall you bring forth children. And then look at this. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So instead of this beautiful complementary unity you see in the garden and God's beautiful design of Adam leading and Eve being a helper fit for him and then both in perfect unity, filling the earth and subduing it. Now, that beautiful relationship is radically fractured. For the woman, her desire will be contrary to her husband and he will not lead in gentleness and purity. He will rule over, he will oppress And so you see this community is radically fractured by sin down to its very core between man and woman, between all of us, between humanity, and then also their community, their communion with God is also broken. They're sent out of the garden. You've seen that every week where they're sent out of the garden. They can no longer dwell in his presence. They can no longer walk with him in the cool of the day because their fundamental reality now is they are sinful. And sin cannot stand before a holy God and not be consumed And so they are sent out of the garden. Tim did a good job of pointing out last week, that's actually a mercy. God knows if they dwell in this garden with me, they will die. They'll be consumed because I'm holy and they're now sinful. And God mercifully sends them away. And if you keep reading Genesis, this idea of sin just ravishing the community of God continues. You see it in the very next story between Cain and Abel. Brothers who are meant to work together. Again, what are they doing? They're fulfilling the creation mandate, working the ground. And all of a sudden, Cain and Abel, rather than dwelling together in brotherly love, you get murder. You see in the first genealogy in Genesis 4, this guy named Lamech, he's kind of, uh, again, meant to kind of be the crescendo of this downward spiral. Look at how he's treating those around him. Look at how he's treating his community, if you will. Genesis 4, 23, Lamech said to his wives, plural, not a great start, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is 77-fold. So you thought Cain was bad. I'm however many more multiplication worse. So you just see this. Everyone around them, they're now treating violently. Our individual needs, our rights, reign supreme, and anybody that gets in our way, they better not be in our way for long, or else there will be bad consequences. That's not just a Lamech problem. That's not just a Cain problem. That's a human problem. I look out for number one. And community, if it serves me, people can hang around. If they don't, I will leave or I will destroy them. That is the human heart post-Genesis 3. And we see that with Cain and Lamech. These are not just examples of, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, those like murderers that were like, oh my gosh, good thing I'm not like those men. The Bible is showing you, here's what's happened to the human heart as a result of Genesis 3, meaning our human heart. 
a hatred for our brother, a hatred for our sister that might dare get in our way and might dare take the focus off of us or take away what's rightfully ours that we've worked hard for, all those sorts of things you see as a result of the fall. But again, as we've seen every single week, God does not leave it there. There's a promise in Genesis 3.15. This serpent that slithered into the garden and led to this uh, destroying of the community of God. One day, God will send someone that will destroy him. And the hope would be we would be restored to what we had lost. So we see the fall utterly devastates this beautiful community that we were made for. And then we see as we move to Abraham, God's great plan of redemption that we see throughout the scriptures, God is going to carry out this Genesis 3.15 promise of restoring what's been lost and remaking this community and crushing the enemy that broke it. He's going to do that through a community, through a family, through not just Abraham, but Abraham's descendants. Look at Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. It won't just be me and you, Abraham, God and Abraham. I'm gonna make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, look at this, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's you, God's talking about in Genesis 3. Ultimately, though it's, it's hidden, there's some, there's some layers of the onion that needs to be unpeeled throughout the scriptures. God's promising right here, through your family, through your community, Abraham, a blessing will come that will bless the whole world, the nations. It'll get us back to what was lost. So we see ultimately Abraham has, oh, sorry, look at Genesis 17. We see the promise repeated. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations, plural, and kings, plural, shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Okay, so God is going to carry out his plan of redemption through a community, namely Abraham's community, what is eventually Israel. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, his name is changed to Israel. He then has 12 sons that are the 12 tribes of Israel who have more than 12 and you eventually get a nation. When we get to the book of Exodus, we see the nation of Israel that is ultimately Abraham's family. God redeems from uh, their slavery in Egypt and then calls them. I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to be my people and I want to be your God. And so we have this covenant with the community of Israel. God is going to carry out, again, his plans through a community. And if you're not of the people of Israel and you want to follow God, you've got these other gods and you're like, I don't think these other gods are either real or they're weaker than Yahweh. I want to follow Yahweh. You couldn't just follow Yahweh. You know what you had to do? You had to join the community of Israel. You couldn't just say, I, individual Moabite, would love to follow God. If you say that, great. You must join the community of God. You must join the community. Go read the book of Ruth. Ruth, who is not an Israelite, joins the community 
of God, the community of Israel. You had to become circumcised if you were male. You had to keep Mosaic law. You had to offer sacrifices for your sins. You had to join. If you want God to be your God, you had to be a people of his people. We'll see that pattern as we continue to walk through the scriptures. And so we see Israel, they're, they're called to be the community of God. They're called to be a very particular set apart, holy community. That's one of the things we're seeing all throughout the book of Leviticus. One of the most repeated things we see is, you should be holy for I am holy. People aren't going to look at you and say, oh, Baal must be their God. I can tell by their wickedness. Or Asherah must be their God because I can tell by their child sacrifice. They're going to say, who is your God? We want to worship him because there's so much justice in your land. And there's so much mercy in your land. And there's so much fruitfulness in your land. And your enemies just seem to fall away. Who is your God? Because he's clearly the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what Israel was meant to be. Their behavior was meant to reflect the God that they served, not only in their holiness, but also in their Love, Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We see that pop up again in the New Testament. I am the Lord. So not just in their holiness, it's not just like they're the most moral of all the nations, therefore they should follow their God, but how they treat one another how they love one another, how they bear with one another, how they are merciful towards one another was all meant to be a reflection of their God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You see that picture? Again, we'll see that pattern pop up again when we look at the church. Israel's behavior towards each other. It's not just they're the great worshipers. In fact, there's tons of times, we looked at it a few weeks ago when we looked at justice and mercy, where Israel are doing all the worshipy things. They're doing all the sacrifices. They're coming to church on Sunday and they're singing loudly, but there's rampant injustice in the streets. There's no mercy. They're mistreating one another. The rich are extorting the poor. And God says, this is what I'm doing at your church services. I don't care about your right worship when your hearts are so wicked and far from me. Their behavior towards one another is meant to be a continual witness as to who their God is, how the community loves each other, how they're separate from the rest of the world is all a testimony to who is the God of this community. And ultimately, that's one of the things that leads to Israel's judgment, their total rebellion not just in leaving God and worshiping other false gods and idolatry and things like that, but also their mistreatment of one another. In fact, they don't want to be holy. What do they cry out whenever they want Saul to be their king? What's their reasoning that they tell Samuel? Give us a king, why? Exactly. I'm assuming those whispers you were saying, we want to be like all the other nations. I couldn't hear a word you said, but I'm guessing that's what you said, very confidently. Uh, <laughs> Every time I ask for audience participation and you guys do it, I like shame you after, so I get why you're timid. Uh, we want to be like all the other nations. Not give us a king because we think it'd be helpful and make your name more glorious, God. Give us a king because we don't like you being our king. Give us a tall, dark, and handsome Saul to lead us. And we see how that goes for them. They don't want to be wholly set apart. They want to be like all the other nations. They don't love one another. They oppress one another. They exploit one another. They don't reflect God's heart. They don't reflect a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so one of the primary reasons Israel's judged 
that we see all throughout the prophets is because of this mistreatment of one another. And one of the things, one of the ways it's described as God is taking their community and scattering them among the nations, breaking them up. We see that with Assyria and we also see that in pieces with Babylon, Ezekiel 12. So they will know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and spread them among the countries. And this is no small thing. It's like, oh, my friends are in Egypt now and I'm in Assyria. The, the community of God that was meant to be a, a, a place for the whole world to look and admire and long to be a part of is being broken up because of their sin and rebellion. And likewise, as God judges the community in a particular way, one of the primary features of the promises of redemption will be a regathering of the true community of God. And one of the interesting things is he's not just saying, I'm going to regather Israel. He's going to say, I'm regathering my true people, which will include Israel and will include people from all nations. Isaiah 66, 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather together all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. Jeremiah 3. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And so you see this promise. When God redeems them, when his judgment hand is stayed and he shows mercy to his people, one of the ways he's going to do that is by gathering in God's people, bringing in the true community. And there's these, these hints at it's this forever community. There's going to be a king who reigns over this community who's never going to step off the throne. He's not just going to have a normal 40-year term. He's going to be there forever. And all wars are going to pass away. And all violence is going to pass away. And there's just going to be an eternal, glorious kingdom of rest and joy as all this, these people are gathered in. And there's this ultimate community. And so you see these big promises. And then towards the end of kind of the timeline of the Old Testament, you see a, a semi restoration, if you will. You see Ezra and Nehemiah they actually do go back. They leave exile and they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the walls. And as there's this great, okay, we finally finished the work. Are people like, yes, we finally got all of our promises fulfilled. No, they're crying because the temple is so puny and they're still under the thumb of Persia. And so they're like, is this is this it? Is this the actual fulfillment of the promise? And the obvious answer is no. And so there's still this longing for these big promises of God's community ultimately being gathered in, and particularly somebody reigning over this perfect eternal community where there's no more swords because they've all been beaten into plowshares. And there's no more fear of snakes. Now kids play over the adder's den and wolves and lambs lie down together and hang out with no threat of death or anything like that. So there's this great longing of all these big promises that surely haven't been fulfilled yet. And then we crack open, we, we leave Malachi and crack open the pages of the New Testament. In particular, we get to John. And John doesn't pick up the timeline where we left off. John goes back to Genesis 1. He goes back to that hint. And he says, in the beginning, first words of Genesis, was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he goes on to describe how this Jesus that will be the center of his gospel is not just 
a first century Jewish carpenter, but is the eternal God who was there at Let There Be Light, at his Father's side, who from all eternity has been in the Father's bosom. As the King James says, there's this clearer picture of that hint at a community. And John says, I'll tell you what it is. It was the eternal Father and his eternal Son and his eternal Spirit gloriously, perfectly loving one another for all eternity. For eternity passed before he said, let there be light. In fact, Jesus himself gives us a clearer glimpse in John 17, praying for his disciples. He says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you've loved me from before the foundation of the world. Jesus just gave us a glimpse in Genesis 0. Before Genesis 1, the Father was eternally loving his Son. So we see this Father, Son, Spirit, Trinitarian community, if you will, that has existed for all eternity. So John says, community is not just woven into creation. Community is woven into the nature of your triune God. There is no isolation. There is no me by myself in the scriptures, not even in our Trinitarian God. And so we see the father sends his son and Jesus comes as that eternal king. And like a good shepherd, he's going after all the lost and wandering sheep. How does God gather in the people that are scattered? How does he call the true community to himself? Does he just put up his hand and say, if you want, here I am, follow this light. No, he sends his son to go after you. When you're walking towards the cliff, the son of the living God comes and says, not that way. Come and follow me. Do Peter, James, and John, and Andrew hear, oh, I think there's a Messiah in town. Let me go search for him. And then they fall at Jesus' feet and say, please, can we follow you? We hear you're the son of God. Is that what happens? No. The son of the living God goes to them as they're working, as they're in the boat, and says, follow me. And in Jesus' life, we see this glorious, beautiful gathering of God's people. And over and over and over again, who he gathers to himself is the most scandalous thing about his ministry. What is one of the most common insults you see levied at Jesus? Look at who he eats with. Tax collectors. Sinners. Prostitutes those who had been exiled from the community. He slows down and looks at the leper. The ones who had, the community of Israel had said, go to the outskirts and scream unclean when you're walking by so that we can avoid you. That's who Jesus goes after. He goes after the woman at the well who goes out, the, gen, the Samaritan woman who goes out to draw water, specifically when it's really hot, so that nobody else is there, so that she doesn't have to bump into anybody because her life is so shameful. That's who Jesus goes after. He goes after the rejected, the forgotten, the outcast from the community. That's who Jesus is going to bring in to God's ultimate community. Even think about the reality of, he's not just going after the outcast. He's purposefully putting in his core 12 people that would almost hate each other to the point of murder. Simon the Zealot, which Zealots in that day were Jews who hated Rome so much they would kind of assassin's creed soldiers, right? As they're walking by, they would 
literally kill them, and a tax collector, the ultimate picture of a Jewish sellout to Rome. There would be no two people who hated each other more in that society. And Jesus puts them both in his core group. What's he doing? We just had the NFL draft. That's all you know, anybody's talking about if you're male and obsessed with your team getting better. And all you care about is who is the best because I want my team to be the best. And this guy's the fastest and the strongest and we got him, right? And everybody freaks out. It's a huge event. Jesus is the worst drafting scout in the world. Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots who might honestly try and kill the tax. I mean, think about it. Who's he getting on his team as they're about to go try and turn the world upside down? From worldly standards, it's the dumbest strategy possible, but that is who he is gathering in to use the foolish, to shame the wise. So he's not just restoring community. Notice who he's restoring. Go read the Gospel of Luke. One of his biggest points, look at the women that Jesus is bringing in, those who society wouldn't have even deemed reliable witnesses. They're the primary witnesses to his resurrection. Look at what Jesus is doing every step of the way. He's tearing down all the dividing walls that we've put up since Genesis 3. He's tearing them down in this community that he's bringing together. And ultimately, he tears them down on the cross. When he's up on the cross and he has the nails driven into his hand, he has all of our individual selfishness, all of our hatred for those who get in our way put on him and he pays for it so that he might make in himself one new man. All that was previously divided, he might restore our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. We who were sent out of the garden, when he dies, the curtain tears because the sin that's kept us out of his presence has now been paid for. Genesis, oh sorry, uh, Ephesians 2, Paul dives into this. Ephesians 2, if you, if you, if you are randomly being convicted, you want to memorize scripture, uh, Ephesians 2 might be the best summary of just kind of the gospel message. If you want to start there, you see in Ephesians, I don't have it in your notes, but Ephesians to the first half is the glorious who we are apart from Christ, dead in our trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, sent his son that he might redeem us by grace. You have been saved. You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We see this beautiful picture of our salvation. And then Paul keeps going and he kind of keeps zooming out. God didn't just save you, child of wrath, and redeem you, individual, by grace. He reconciled you to a people. Look at Ephesians 2, 13. This is right after that glorious section. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of of Christ by the cross. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh on the cross the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That hostility that existed between Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot is killed on the cross. Then I look at each other and just see brother in Christ by killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What do you and a Christian a thousand miles away have in common? If nothing else in the world, you have the same Father because you're united to the same Savior. You see that. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I mean, do you sit in that? We love Ephesians 1 through 10. It might be one of the few verses we have memorized. By grace you've been saved, not by your works so that no one may boast. Right? Take that, Catholics. We do that. It's all by grace, by grace, by grace. Do we keep reading and see he hasn't just saved me. Ephesians 2 isn't just a not hell passage or a grace passage. It's a glorious reconciliation passage. Do you see one another through the Ephesians 2 lens? There is no hate that could exist between you that hasn't been killed on the cross. Do you view one another through this lens, or do we say, one through ten, good, and then Paul keeps talking? <laughs> do you see that, what he's done on the cross? He hasn't just paid for our sin. He's reconciled us to God and to one another. So that's what Christ done, and now it's moved to the main section, the community of Jesus Christ. Again, this is where we'll spend the most time. So our salvation, kind of what we just talked about, you getting saved is you getting saved into a community. You being brought into the community of Jesus Christ. When someone becomes a Christian, they're united to Christ, and they're also united to his people, all those who are also united to Christ. So we have fellowship with God. We see that in 1 John, this glorious fellowship with the Father and his Son. So God is our Father. Christ is our brother, but he is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, right? Romans 8. So you're saved. Yes, you're united to him, but you're also united to his people, all the others who have been united to him. So we have fellowship with God, and we also have fellowship with God's people. Can you see all these wonderful images all throughout the New Testament? Maybe the most famous is Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 12. I have it there for you, that we're all one body in Christ, so there is no individual, you being an individual Christian apart from the body of Christ would be as weird as seeing a hand walking through the parking lot by itself. Very strange, very weird, impossible, some might say, because there's no heart and there's no brain, so how's this even working? It is that weird to think you and God, none of God's people don't need to belong to a local church, none of the one another commands, none of the... Ephesians 2, glorious realities. It's just me and God. That's a hand walking through the parking lot. We see all these things. There's, there's no such thing 
as the Lone Ranger Christianity that, again, is, I think, I mean, I grew up here, so it's just my, my perspective, but the most common form of Christianity I think I've encountered, me and God and then the church is a convenient add-on, but it is a convenient add-on. And when it's not convenient, it's not in my life. So we see that's actually nowhere in the scriptures. You're saved into a people. In fact, the very thing that's supposed to mark you off from the world, that's supposed to make you distinct from the world, that's meant to make you a holy people, is your membership in a local church. You could go around and just, by your confession, say, I'm a Christian, right? You could do that. But what happens when you encounter a Mormon who will say, I'm a Christian? Or what happens when you encounter what I'm sure everyone in this room has encountered, people who would say that, but do not live in a Christian way. There's zero fruit in their life. There's no affirmation that what they're saying actually matches the reality of their heart. And the whole point of the local church is you have others who are coming around you and saying, I've seen it. I've seen them when they were dead in their trespasses and sin. I've seen them when they're alive in Christ. And I affirm this brother or this sister is a Christian. That's why you see every single letter minus the pastoral epistles is, is written to a church. Not individual. There's no human being named Ephesus, right? Or Ephesians. That's the church in Ephesus. So the local church is meant to make us distinct from the world. I'm actually reading right now a book on Charles Spurgeon, who's a very famous preacher, but there's a Spurgeon scholar that just wrote a book on him as a pastor. He's a pastor of a church, though he's most famous for his preaching. And their membership process was insane because Spurgeon was so convinced of this biblical reality that uh, those within the church should be regenerate believers. If you said, if you went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, his church, and said, I want to join. I'm a Christian. I want to join. They would set up an interview with an elder you would tell them the gospel. They would then grill you with tons of questions. And if you uh, passed, you would then meet with Spurgeon. And he would grill you. And if you passed that, you would have a member meeting. And they would assign what they called a visitor. And that person would go and talk to your neighbors. And they would go talk to your family. And they would go talk to your coworkers. And they would say, uh, do they seem to have this sort of Holiness, so they seem to have this peace that surpasses all understanding. Do you, did you, have you seen a radical change? They say they became a Christian two years ago. Did you see a radical change in Bill from two years ago to now? And if they were satisfied, then they would come put it to a congregational vote and that person would be admitted in. It's more rigorous than our elder process. Right? Because Spurgeon was absolutely convinced. When we let somebody in, we're saying this person has been regenerated by the Lord and this person is going to be encouraging and building up all the one another's that we see in our church body. And so we want to be very sure. And then that person simultaneously could say, I've got people around me to affirm the Lord has saved me. And when they're wrestling with their faith, they have brothers and sisters come around and say, no, 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 I've seen the supernatural work. Don't let this dark valley make you take your eyes off of the shepherd. I'm not advocating we go to that, but that's what Spurgeon did. So like, so just notice the parallel. Like in the Old Testament, you want to follow God, you must join his people. You must join Israel. So in the New Testament, you want to follow Jesus, you join his people. There is no Lone Ranger following Jesus. You're baptized into a church. We gather together as a church. You, you realize what's happening on Sunday is not just random Christians who happen to get or live in McKinney gathering to listen to a preacher and sing the same worship songs. 
It's the hands of the body, the kneecaps of the body, the, the body gathering together on the Lord's day, being called to gather by their God. That's why we have a call to worship and hearing from their God together as the body, as those who have covenanted to one another. I'm not responsible for the burdens of the people across the street. I am responsible for your burdens as you're responsible for mine if you're a member of this church. We gather together to worship our same God. We eat the family meal if the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down in his flesh, that's one of the things we're declaring as we take the body and the blood, the, the cracker and the wine at the Lord's table. We're declaring our unity as one body. We submit to the same spiritual oversight, the same elders who are given account of your souls to God in the last day, right? To protect us from sin and to disciple us. Eugene Peterson, uh, who's a pastor, translated the message, if you've ever read that, he wrote a lot of really uh, good books, says this about just the reality that we're saved into a church. There are Christians who say, I love God, but I hate the church, but they are members all the same, whether they like it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, for God never makes private secret salvation deals with people. His relationships with us are personal, true, intimate, yes, but private, no. No Christian is an only child. So we're saved into the church. And then like Israel, our behavior together, the marks of our community are meant to be a witness to who our God is. Notice, I'm, I have a non-exhaustive list in front of you. Notice how in each of these, something pours out of Jesus' heart into your heart and it's meant to overflow into one another. We'll see that pattern over and over and over and over again. So our behavior is meant to reflect God like Israel, which is why, again, why does Paul take so much time to say all these one another's to the Romans, to the Corinthians, to the Philippians, these churches that are around and they're fighting and they're not being unified. Paul writes, says, be unified, love one another, bear one another's burdens, represent your savior well. How you behave with each other is a representation of Jesus. So let's look at some of these marks that we're meant to just exhibit. And then just, I don't have a whole lot of application points, but let me just encourage you, let this sift you. Think as we go through this, is this a reflection? If you remember at Parkway, is this a reflection of my life at Parkway? Is this how I view everyone that I'm a member of the church with? Or is this a place that I have good friends and we attend the same church? You see how radically different those are? So let this kind of sift you. And if you're feeling kind of the prick of conviction, just... Repent, that's the glorious gift God's given us. We can repent and turn and study the scriptures. It's kind of meant to happen every single Sunday as we allow the word to form us. So let's look at the first, maybe the most primary, the love of the community, the love of the church. Look at how Jesus says this to his disciples in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We almost always think, how do people know I'm a Christian? My great piety, the loud volume of my worship songs, or the verses that I have hanging on my walls. I've got those hanging on my walls. That's not a shameful thing. We always think, how much I display I love God will let everybody know I'm a Christian. That is not what Jesus says. Jesus says, people will know you're a disciple of Jesus by how much you love each other. 
when people look at you and say, wow, you really do lay, lay down your life for them. Wow, you really do care. Wow, their burdens really are your burdens. Wow, you do pray for them with just this earnest passion that they might get gospel freedom. You must be a Jesus follower. That's the witness. You see that pattern. And then notice Jesus is saying, as I have loved you, as my love has been poured out into your heart, so it is meant to overflow into your love for one another. All of these, we'll see it pour out from Jesus' heart into heart and then onto one another. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 3 and Hebrews 13. Love will also have elements of forgiving one another. 70 times 7. Why? Because you've been forgiven. As forgiveness pours out from Jesus' heart into your heart, so it must pour out into others. You see, we'll see in Matthew, when people don't forgive, the conclusion is they haven't encountered the gospel because forgiven people forgive. You've been forgiven much, much more than you would ever dare think probably. Therefore, you extend forgiveness as well. It means patient, long-suffering with one another. You don't see people, C.S. Lewis brings this out in his great sermon, The Weight of Glory. You don't see people where they're at. You see people as God is making them. The spirit of the living God is dwelling in your hearts if you're a believer and is uprooting the weeds of sin and planting the fruit of the spirit and the soil of humility. And you are meant to see them, not as all their problems now, but who God is making them. And Lewis says, if we actually saw the glorified versions of ourselves, who we will be when we see him in glory, we'd be tempted to probably worship. That's how Jesus sees you. He doesn't see you with all your messy problems. He sees you as perfect, right? With, as your sins are paid for, therefore you see one another that way as well. The humility of the community. Philippians 2, this glorious passage. Again, notice the pattern. Paul's going to tell them, be humble, and then notice what is his source of that humility. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humble yourself, consider others better than yourselves, look out to the interests of others. Why? Because you had someone who, though he was God, was born in a dirty feed trough and died a slave's death that he might redeem you. You have the ultimate humble one pouring his humility into your heart. Therefore, treat others that way. You see that. The Bible never just gives you random virtues. This is what I'm trying to get you to see. The Bible never gets you just random. Here's some good morals that'll make you not like the gross world. The Bible is always uniting you to a person. Jesus you're patient because he's been so patient with you. You love because he's loved you. You're humble towards others because he has been so humble in redeeming you when you were the epitome of pride. You see that. You see how relational that is. You see why I'm always saying, get your eyes up on him. Because the Bible's trying always to set your eyes on him. It's not just giving you a bunch of random religious 
virtues. And so as the people of Jesus Christ, who have been united to him, who have had his love and his humility and his patience all poured into our heart, as our eyes turn and look towards each other, that same love and humility and patience and hatred of sin and longing for us to grow and look more like Christ is meant to pour out of our hearts towards one another. Do you see that? I'm having to summarize because I'm out of time. I literally, I shortened my notes by four pages and I'm nowhere near done. So I just guess this is what happens when I have to teach. Okay, I'm sorry. We see that same thing with service. What does Jesus do as he goes into the upper room? He washes his disciples' feet and then says, therefore, you likewise serve one another. You see that same pattern. The king of the universe got down and wiped the grossest thing in their culture. Dirty, sandal, smelly feet. I got little kids that do this all the time. When they open those little clammy hands, just the treasures you find there is unreal. And then the odor, right? That, that times a billion is the feet of Peter. And the king of the universe gets down on his knees and does something that a slave probably wouldn't even do because it would be beneath him and says, likewise, you serve one another. You see that flowing from his heart into your heart, spilling out to one another. And then lastly, I don't want to miss this. There's Ephesians 4 there for you. I want you to read that, not now, but read that later. If there's anything I could kind of put at the heart of our church, if I could pray a scripture into just the DNA of us, that's what I would want uh, to pray into us. It's this glorious reality of we are meant to point one another towards Christ. And as you look to him, you will be made more like him. The work of the ministry within the church isn't this, isn't what you're seeing right now. In fact, my job is to equip you to do the work of ministry. This church will be very weak and very fragile if you've got five ministers. But if we have 200, 300, all pointing one another to Jesus, and my job is to equip you to do that work, we'll be a very strong church. We might dare be a church that gives this sort of supernatural witness because it displays the life of Christ, because we are intentionally pointing one another to Christ. That's what you see that picture in Ephesians 4. God gives the church pastors to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And then we see towards the end, we, we have this glorious theme of community carried into eternity. We get this picture of all of God's people, all the saints of all the ages, every tribe, tongue, and nation together forever, praising our glorious God who sits on the throne and praising the glorious lamb who gave himself to be slain for us. We see an eternal community, our restored perfect community together forever with one another, and then our restored perfect community with God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. As Genesis 3 declares, behold, the dwelling place of God cannot be with man. We see a beautiful reversal of that where we will see his face and we will be with him together as his bride forever. So just a couple of applications. Uh, uh, we don't have time for questions. I apologize. Uh, again, I've, I just confessed. I don't know what to do. I'll just come with a one page of notes next time and we'll see if that takes us an hour. Um, so a couple of applications. One, I, I just want to encourage you, uh, study this. And that's a very unhelpful, it's not very practical, but just let the Bible rewire you. Let the Bible shape you. Let how the Bible talks about, not just this theme, but all these glorious truths shape 
how you view reality. That's what it's meant to do. You're the marble pillar, and the Bible is the chiseler. I don't know how sculptures work. That's just what I assume based on cartoons, right? Let the Bible shape this in you. Read good books. Email me. I've got some good books there, resources, uh, if you want to read uh, more on the subject. Just the reality of the church. What is the church meant to be? So study, and then I would just encourage you two things, and then we'll, we'll be done. Uh, build intentional relationships, and then uh, intentionally point one another to Jesus in those relationships. Okay, so enjoying each other's personalities is a, is a blessing, and it's a reality. You're going to like people. DJ's going to like people who like the dolphins, which is why he, you know, He's really just looking for friends because nobody likes the dolphins. I'm just kidding. I like, yeah. you're going to enjoy one another's personalities. But if you stop there, there is nothing supernatural. There is nothing that says these must be Jesus's people. That's a glorious piece of a blessing, enjoying one another's company, but it's not an end point. The end point is pointing one another to our glorious savior that actually unites us and tears down everything that might bring disunity. So build good relationships. And, and let me just, if I can encourage you, work really hard not to blame others for the lack of relationships in your life. Work really hard. I'm just saying it's not good for your heart to always be like, the church just doesn't care about community or I guess people just don't like me, right? Work really hard not to do that because A, those two things are not true and it's gonna be unhelpful for you. Say, okay, for 10 weeks out of the year, I'm gonna invite somebody to lunch or I'm going to trade numbers with somebody, right? right? Do good, build good relationships. Invite people into your home intentionally. Get to know their story. Get to know how they uh, came to know the Lord. Share a bit of your story and how you came to know the Lord. Open up a bit to your brothers and sisters that you've covenanted to to bear one another's burdens. All these one another passages for you apply to the fellow members of the Parkway Church. You're meant to. You're called to intentionally, how can I stir up him or her to love and good works? How can I bear their burdens? What are their burdens? How can I care for them? How can I pray for them? I don't mean that in the, the cheap way. That's kind of like our Christian sign-off. Love you, I'll be praying. And we don't mean I'll be praying. We mean I'm sorry for the bad things that are happening in your life. Write down note cards, even if you have to go old school, right? You don't look at a phone. How can I know you? How can you know me? And how can I just begin to overlap my life with your life? If I'm reading a book, I, I try to get somebody to read that book with me so that if I'm edified by it, they might be as well and we might get a couple coffees out of it and, and mutually sharpen one another. I'm so encouraged when I hear that that's happening. There's groups uh, of people in the church that just wanted to get together and study the Psalms, so that's happening. There's groups that get together and are studying systematic theology. There's groups that get together and read the New Testament together. They pray Psalms together and they just read good books, like Knowing God by J.R. Packer and things like that. that. That's all just a result of intentionality and saying, how can I build good relationships? How can I have people around me that when I'm blind, as the scriptures tell me I am, are going to slap the poison of sin out of my hand and point me back to Jesus, right? the, the satisfying portion. Do that good hard work. We have formal ways of doing it. Joining a community group is the primary way if you could just instantly you know, get people around you. You're going to study the scriptures together. You're going to pray together. You're going to care for one another. But then just look on your rows or email me or DJ. Or we know people that we can connect you to and do that good hard work. And let me just, just see what God does. 
See if the gospel is true. See if it actually does bring peace and joy and rest to be known and loved by fellow members of the body of Christ. See if it is true that it's a good thing to have people lovingly bear your burdens. If you're being crushed right now, the people in this room are meant to carry that weight with you. As we look to the one who says, come to me, all, plural, who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And then he turns and says, now you bear one another's burdens. Just see if it's true. So, so do that hard work. It's hard work. It's informal work. It's not the quick fix. It's nuanced. It's going to be tricky. You're going to have to lay down tons of preferences. Don't do that one meeting and be like, we didn't click. Because I'm not talking about your personalities. I'm talking about what the scriptures would call you to. That's a human being made in the image of God, being sanctified to look more like Jesus, that you're called to help point to Jesus by very nature of being brothers and sisters in Christ. So don't let kind of the normal things that are normal, if you're a Christian or not, do we click, all those sorts of things, get in the way of this glorious supernatural reality because what is at stake is his glorious name. Your relationships with one another will give a witness to either how wonderful he is and how true it is that he does tear down the dividing wall of hostility or it will give a very poor witness of he's, I guess, not strong enough to unite these two together. You see that. That is what Jesus is saying. People will look at your relationships with one another and say, those must be Jesus' people or I want nothing to do with them or their Savior. I didn't mean to, I hope that's not heavy. I didn't mean to end like this. I had such a good ending, but I'm rushing. Um, okay, those are good books, by the way. All the resources that we have there, I, we would love for you to read and I would love to read them with you. See what I'm doing here? Uh, and I've read all of them before, so I'll just read them again. Uh, but those, if, if you want more of this, that, those are great places to start. Our elders, actually, by the way, are reading that top one, the compelling uh, community. The Spurgeon one is the one I mentioned. Let me pray because I don't have a close, but three minutes over. Father, uh, we love you. We pray. <laughs> Father, you give us grace. I can already imagine uh, when we look at so many commands in the scriptures, all the one another's, uh, when we become aware of us falling short of that, there's two voices. Uh, one is your spirit. It says, yeah, here's the command. Here's where you fall short. And that's why uh, grace exists, to repent and draw you deeper into it. And we rely on a Savior who has already perfectly kept all the one another's on our behalf. But then there's the other voice uh, that says, you're a failure. And you're never going to be able to do this. And it just ironically becomes another crushing burden. I pray that you would silence the second voice. I pray that where I was summarizing and perhaps spoke too heavy or misspoke, whatever the case may be, that that would not crush people when the whole point of your glorious community is to bring life and to have people that fix their eyes on the Savior that says, if you're weary, I'm here to fix that. If you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, I'm here to fix that. So I pray that you would help that, uh, Lord, you would sow seeds of the gospel and that we would actually reap the harvest of, of your church, that Parkway, this little church in, in this suburb of Dallas, would, around Collin County, give a witness just by how much we love each other and how forgiving we are and how long-suffering we are and how intentional we are, Lord, that your name might be glorified and how much we hate sin because we love the joy that comes from you. And we would hate anything that would rob us of that. So I pray you'd be with us. I pray that you would encourage us, that you would lift our eyes up on you. Uh, and Lord, I pray even as we gather, 
today, as Carl preaches, that we would gather as a people, as a community of God, united under one Savior, and worship your wonderful name. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.